All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. This is where we're continuing, really finished. So if we're looking at, so in Matthew 28, you have really the events of Easter, uh, the events of the resurrection, and how the church handled those, and how Christ tells us to handle those. I mean, that's the idea. What would we do as a church? What would our life look like as a people if we really believed in the resurrection? If we really believed that Jesus Christ came out of the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning, what would our lives look like? How, how different would our worship be? Not, not just on Easter Sunday, right? That's a, there's, a, there, there's always this recognition that Easter Sunday service looks different. Uh, how can we be, how can we take that motivation because Christ is just as risen today as he was last week, just as risen now as he was then. So how can we take the joy, the fervor, the reaction to the empty tomb and apply that year round? What, what would we have done? What would our lives had looked like, have looked like if we had been there at the tomb? If we had been there to see the resurrected Christ face to face, how can, how can for us Easter be so real that we respond in the same way they responded? If Easter and the events of Easter are just as real for us as they were for those at the tomb, if the effects of the risen Christ are just as powerful in our lives, how can we respond as if Easter was real? How would our lives look if the resurrection genuinely happened? What we want is for our lives not to look any different here on Sunday than if we were standing on the t- in front of the tomb on that day. That's what we want. And so when we looked, we looked at that for them, Easter was a time of, of fear, but also of joy. Fear because sort of the veil is pulled back, right? They go to the tomb to do a normal thing that you do with a dead guy, which is to make his body ready. And they get there and instead of normal, what do they see? An angel, right? They get an earthquake and angels there, tombs roll, the stones rolled away. And these things cause them to fall down in fear. The, the guards there actually fall down as if dead. The women are, are sore afraid. So Easter is a time where we realize this is not a game that we play. We are not playing church to a pretend God and a, and a sort of, a, a, sort of a, a, a spiritual salve of a savior. A real man, the God man, truly God, truly man, Jesus Christ came out of that tomb and angels proclaimed it and demons hated it. So it was a time of fear, but it was also a time of great joy, remember, because it was really Jesus who came out. And since it's all real, that means their friend Jesus came out. And so there was great joy in seeing their Savior. 
But they weren't just joyous as they left. Jesus is alive. They, there was also that humble worship, remember, so when they saw him. They were happy. They were happy as they left. And you can imagine that. He's alive. He's alive. And then when they see them, what did they do? When he saw them and they saw him, they fell and clung to his feet and worshiped him. They fell at his feet and worshiped, clinging to him to where, remember, Jesus had to say, don't cling to me. So not only did they fall at his feet, so they grabbed his feet. And I said, that's what our worship should be like. If Jesus is real, then our worship should be humble. Every time we come here, it should be as if we are coming and clinging to the feet of Christ. Unfortunately, our world has taught us that worship is not about Christ, but about us. And so we evaluate church, we evaluate worship, we evaluate everything based on our preferences and what we like. If the church doesn't have our preferences, well then, you know, we'll just go on to something else. And the idea that when you get here, you should be, the idea of you should be crucified long before you get to this place. This is a place where we come not to cling to our preferences, our likes, our desires, our wants, our wishes, but to fall down at the feet of Christ. To be a group of people, a body of believers who come in here humbled and ready to worship him instead of coming here and expecting everybody else to worship us. It was a time also of faith and evangelism, but in, a, in an antipathy sort of way, because the faith and evangelism that began wasn't faith and evangelism from Christians, remember? Who were the first ones that used their faith and their evangelism in that day? It was the Jews who were denying uh, Jesus's death, remember? The guards came, they told the Jews what they saw, they told them about the angels, they told them about the stone, and, and the Jewish leaders said, instead of saying, Oh my goodness, he really was the Christ. Let's worship him. They said, we're going to pay you money not to tell anybody what you saw. And then we're going to go and we're going to tell Pilate. We'll take care of Pilate for you. As the first missionaries were anti-missionaries. And so we looked at that and we said, look, if the world, if the world can be motivated to share what they know is a lie, Uh, even though they know the truth, even though they know there is a God, even though Romans 1 tells us that in his grace, he has written his law on the hearts of everyone. If the world can can go and and share that lie, how can they have more faith in that lie, the thing they know isn't real? And how can that change their life so much, that lie that they know, they know they're suppressing the truth. How can their faith in the lie be greater than our faith in the truth? Because we have the truth. The tomb is empty. Real angels proclaimed a real risen Savior. And yet our faith is not as great as theirs. And our evangelism is less. Because they gave their money to stop that message getting out. And then they offered to go and said, we'll talk to the governor about it. We'll make sure no one hears about this. The world is evangelizing your neighbors and your children. What are you doing about it? If Easter is real, we will have at least as much faith and at least as much passion to evangelize as the lost world does. So that's what we saw last week. You're going, well, we could have obviously gone through it a lot quicker than it took us last week. It looks like an hour last week. Uh, We could have just done that in, in five minutes. But what's interesting is that those things that we saw aren't the end 
to the reality of Easter. They're not the end of what happens because those were really only responses to the event. That's just how people responded. In fact, you could argue that those things aren't even the most important responses to a real Easter, to a real resurrection, because they're just all descriptive, not prescriptive, right? They're just telling you what people did. It's not the Bible telling you to do that. It's not the Bible telling you to go and, and, and cling to the feet of Jesus or it's not the Bible telling you you should be afraid. It's just describing that that's what happened to them. It's how we see these people respond and what that can teach us. But after Easter, we don't just get, we don't just see responses, we get told how to respond. Jesus tells us how to respond to the events of the resurrection. Uh, their, their response was for that day. This is what they did that day. Jesus is going to tell us how Easter should affect the church every day going forward. This is what the disciples did that day. Now he's going to tell the disciples and the church, this is what you do now every day in light of this day. And so that's, it's, that's why it's kind of good that this is where we are. The week after Easter, because this is where Jesus is going to go to them and say, this is what you do when this day is over. This is your mission from here on out. This is how I want you to respond, not just today and be done with it. These are, these are what you're going to do from now on. And so in, in Matthew 28, uh, Jesus had told the women to tell the disciples that he'd meet with them in Galilee. The women, they go, they tell the disciples, the 11 went to Galilee. They go to the mountain Jesus had told them to go to. And when they see Jesus, they worship some doubt and and this is where jesus tells them what to do with easter so let's uh let's stand in the honor of reading god's word and let let's uh let's read let's read all of matthew 28 here we're going to read all of the account of the resurrection uh, it's just 20 verses, so it won't take us very long, especially if you're used to the readings that we do on Sunday afternoons, right? You're like, 20 verses, that's nothing, that's nothing. Now, after the resurrection, or, or sorry, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they'd assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, as we get to these words of Christ, to what to do with Easter, I pray that we are already clinging to the feet of that Christ so that as he speaks to us in his word right now, Father, we're already humbly willing to obey whatever he calls us to do. And so, God, I pray that your word will find in us very fertile soil for what you have said, that our hearts will be, will be anticipating being able to be obedient. All the other things that could distract us on this day, all the other things that could take our focus, are, they pale in comparison to your glory. So forgive us if anything has caused us to not think about you and you alone. And may we now, in obedience, heed your words. May we treat Easter and we treat the resurrection as a real event that is supposed to not just shape that day, but every day of our lives, that our lives are supposed to be different because Christ is risen. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. So as you, uh, as we, you know, sort of look at that idea here in Matthew, uh, Matthew 28. Sorry, I gotta clear my throat. Look at, look at Jesus' words there at the end. That's what we're going to focus on. That's, that's where we've got uh, Jesus giving what we called, or we, I, uh, called Jesus' Easter sermon. So this is the sermon that Jesus gives post-Easter. This is his resurrection has happened. Jesus now is going to get up, give uh, his sermon. He says in verses 18 through 20, he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus has returned and he goes back to what he did before. He starts teaching them, but he's teaching them. This is one last time. One last message with these disciples for Matthew. These are the last words of his entire gospel. Realize how, I mean, I know the great, as we call it, the great commission. It, it kind of has importance. We know it that way. But think about the importance of these words just in the book of Matthew as a whole. Think of what Matthew is doing when the Holy Spirit's inspiring him. And with this, this is what I want you to, this is the last thing I want you to say. And when you think of Matt, this, I mean, this is, to go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the fulfillment. I mean, you go through Matthew, this is the fulfillment of all the things that the prophets had said. Remember, as you're reading through Matthew, it's like, this is to fulfill, this is to fulfill, this is to fulfill. And then this is the end. This is the end of Matthew's gospel. But, but Matthew, Matthew's gospel isn't supposed to be an ending. Matthew's gospel is a beginning. The, these, these aren't final remarks here. These are marching orders for the disciples. This isn't Jesus summing it all up and going, and that's the end of my story. 
This is, this is Jesus telling his disciples, now this is what you do. And as you're reading Matthew and you've read Matthew, and you go, I want to be a disciple of Christ. This is the son of David. This is the son of Abraham promised long ago. This is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament spoke about. Here he is. What does he tell me to do? He's risen from the grave. He's proven himself. And he tells his disciples and those who would follow those disciples as they followed Christ, he says, this is what I want you to do. So, so what, what are his marching orders? What is his last teaching? And it's interesting that this gospel that begins with Jesus' ministry, giving a sermon on a mountain in Galilee, ends with Jesus giving a sermon on a mountain in Galilee. The first message Jesus gave in Matthew, the first sermon was on a, ma- on a mountain in Galilee. And now we come again to a mountain on Galilee. I'm sure not in any way coincidental. And what's going to be Jesus' last sermon? What does he tell them? What's his message? What, what do they do with the resurrected Jesus? And what you're going to see for, from Christ is that the time for veiled action is over. Easter, the resurrection, is going to be a time of great and obvious confidence for Christ and for his people. A resurrected Lord now reigns and he leads a confident people into confident action. It's funny, many, many people want to run to the, just to the Great Commission part and, and talk about the, the action that Jesus calls us to. And Jesus does call us to, to action, but the Great Commission and Jesus' words here, his, his final teaching to his disciples, it doesn't begin with, with actions that they're supposed to do. It begins with the authority to do those actions. So if you're looking at Jesus' Easter sermon, Jesus' Easter sermon begins with a confident kingdom. It begins with a confident kingdom in verse 18. Look at what it says. All authority. So start, how does he start out? He looks at them and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore. I mean, that's how it begins. It begins, if you remember, if you remember back to Jesus' trial, if you remember at Jesus' trial, the chief priests made him to swear under oath whether he was the Christ, whether he was the son of God. And Jesus told Matthew, this is Matthew 26, 64. Jesus told them, he said, look, from this point on, you're going to see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From this point on, no more, no more, don't tell anybody. No more, keep this to yourself. He looks at them, he says, you don't know who I am? From this point on, you want to know who the Son of Man is? You're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. And so their minds were immediately like, I'm sure like, oh man, does this mean we got to go read Daniel again? Uh so we've got to go back to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, and I wonder how many of them did and went, this could be scary for us. I mean, in Luke, in Luke chapter 23, 42 and 43, remember this that great scene, the criminal that's hanging at Jesus' side. And that guy said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
When your kingdom comes, Jesus, whatever that day may be, when it comes, remember me. And what does Jesus say to that man? What's the first word he says? He says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. So now after Easter, I mean, after Easter, Jesus is no longer speaking of a, of a future kingdom, but is able to proclaim all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Therefore, this is what you do because that's true. Not just because that's going to be true someday, not just because one day in the sweet by and by or anything. He says, look, this has happened The son of man is at the right hand of power. I have come into my kingdom. And it's funny. The New Testament church thrives on that confidence. It's built on the confidence that our king reigns. I mean, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 23. Talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, which was worked when? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. I mean, so you can see here, you can see here the resurrection. You can see here Jesus' words in Matthew 26, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rules. So that means they obviously read the gospel of Matthew, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he says, this great power. So Paul's encouraging the Ephesians. He says, look, this great power in us as a church, this great power in us is, is power that God worked, the same power that God worked in Christ when he raised him and seated him above all rule and authority in this age and in the age to come. And that king, he says, that king, this is where the power of the church comes from. That king who is head over all things is head of you, church. He has given, he has given him to you, put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. We are the body of that great king. We are no weak and middling, pathetic thing. We are the body of Christ Jesus, who was raised by God, who has shown the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. There is confidence in our king and in his kingdom. There is a confidence to our lives then as Christians, a confidence that we're not waiting for Jesus to finally be in power, but that says he already is. And because he is in power, he tells us, therefore, act. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, this is what you do. 
But the start of Jesus, the start of our understanding, even our actions, we have to grasp where the therefore begins at. He says, do all this because I am king. Do all this because all authority in heaven and earth is mine. And the early church, Paul knew that. And Paul said, if we have that power, then nothing can stop us. And it's not just power outside us, it's power in us. He's the head, but church, we're the body of that king. So he gives us a, begins, Jesus' Easter sermon begins with a confident kingdom. And I'm sure they were like, that would be enough. But he then goes beyond that because our confidence, our, our confidence as Christians is not just confidence that Christ reigns. It is also confidence in the mission that he gives us. And so Christ gives his people after giving them his confident kingdom, he then gives them a confident mission. Matthew uh, 18, or eight, 18, Matthew 28, 18 through, through 19. So, so all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus, Jesus gives us a very, very specific actions here, or really gives us a very specific action. There's one verb here, just one verb. Everything else, just participles, building off that verb. If you want to know more about participles, talk to Megan. Uh, she's, uh, she's our English teacher. Uh, so I mean, everything, there's one verb, one action that he calls his people to, and that's go, or no, it's not go, it's make disciples. Make disciples. The rest of the verse is just telling us how to do that, to whom to do that, things like that. Now, the call to make disciples isn't shocking. Make disciples, of course. Well, I mean, the, the Jesus had made the disciples at sometimes hundreds of disciples, and now he gives his disciples that same call. It would be very common for Jewish rabbis to do this. You know, you kind of follow my tradition, and you have your own disciples. and None of that's shocking. But what is interesting, it's not that he says make disciples. But who he says to make disciples of? He says to make disciples of all nations. Now, since we're not Jews, this verse probably doesn't shock us as much. But, I mean, make disciples of the nation. Now, you, we've got to recognize the word nations is the same word as the word Gentiles. And so in your Bibles, you'll probably see it translated both ways, depending on the context and what's going on. It's the word Gentiles, nations, Gentiles, ethnoth, ethnikos, Greek words you throw away right after today. So to make disciples, not just to make disciples, but you want us to make disciples of the nations? I mean, really, Jesus? The nations. And not just make disciples of nations not just make disciples of gentiles not just make the disciples of those people make disciples of whom of all nations now why is that shocking well let's look at what's been said about the nations just in the gospel of matthew up until this point because just in in the gospel of matthew we've been told in matthew chapter 6 verse 32 that we're not supposed to be like the nations that we're not supposed to be. Don't be like the Gentiles. Now we're supposed to go make this up. So Matthew chapter 6, 32, for the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need all them. So don't think after those things, what are you supposed to seek after? 
Seek after his kingdom and his righteousness, right? And all these things will be added to you. Don't, seek, don't be like the Gentiles who are seeking after these things. Remember when the disciples later get in a fight about who's going to be greatest? He's like, the Gentiles argue about having power in Christ's church. Are you seriously arguing about who's going to be in power? You're acting like a Gentile. Jesus even had to tell, I mean, previously, this is why this has to, he has to tell the disciples, because previously in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had told his disciples not to go to the nations. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, he says, the 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, go nowhere among the nations, and enter no town of the Samaritans. And Jesus had said that a member of the church who doesn't repent of their sin is supposed to be treated like the Gentiles, treated like the nations. It's obviously not an esteemed position. Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, as one of the nations, as a tax collector. In fact, the last thing that Jesus had told them about the nations is that they would be hated by the nations. Matthew 24, verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So I'm sure the disciples were, had an idea of what their relationship was going to be like with the nations, and it probably wasn't what Jesus said in Matthew 28. So don't be like these people. Don't go to these people. Treat unrepentant church members like these people. You'll be hated by these people. Now he says, now go to these people and make disciples. Make disciples. And and he, he, he doesn't, again, he doesn't even say make disciples of the nations, but make disciples of all of these people, of all the nations, of all the ethnic groups, all the ethnos. But when Jesus says that, Although we've seen in Matthew 28 and in Matthew I'm saying these, these other things, Jesus is not coming up with some grand new idea. Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't taking the Old Testament that was really all about the Jews, right? And now he's coming and he's saying, no, now God's turned over a new leaf and he wants everyone to be saved. He said, he is, Jesus is just doing what God had always said in the Old Testament he was going to do at the coming of Christ. And so as those Jews went back to Daniel chapter 7, that's what we're going to do. Because remember that Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. This is favorite time. I mean, you're, if you're counting what Jesus calls himself, it, it, nothing compares to the number of times that he calls himself the Son of Man. I mean, the, in the Gospel of Matthew alone, really primarily, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man 30 times. And I said that those people who heard that in Matthew 26 would have been going, oh, we better go to Daniel 7 and see what it says. Well, look at why they would go to Daniel 7. Look at what Daniel 7 says. The son of man who's going to be coming on clouds. It's like Jesus said, look at what he says that son of man is going to do. Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came interestingly, not to us, but to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Well, for what purpose? That all peoples, nations, 
and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It is that kingdom that Jesus, the son of man, has been given and that he proclaims to his disciples. And that kingdom, Daniel 7 tells us, includes all peoples, all nations, all languages. So his disciples are to take that message of that kingdom and that king that Jesus is not making up, that Jesus is fulfilling, and not only proclaim it to the nations, not only say, hey, this is your king, serve him, but say, this is your king, Follow him. Make disciples of the nations. That's even more. So we're supposed to go to the nations. But they're not even just going to the nations and like, you know, like, like back in some of the Old Testament stories where Jonathan's like, whether by many or by few, we will conquer that. So it's not just going out and saying, try to beat us now, right? We're Israel. We've got Christ on our side. We're, they're going and saying, look, come and here's your king. Follow him. Follow him. The nations are to follow the Lord, but not just as king, but as teacher. They're not, he, they're not, they're not making them just servants, but, but disciples. And here is where we see, I think, the greatest confidence. Because Jesus expects the nations not just to be willing to serve the king, but to want to be disciples so he tells his disciples what to do with the nation it's funny jesus gives this great call make disciples of the nations and immediately as we do with so many other promises and proclamations of god we immediately try and water down his words so he says go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them we read that he says go and make disciples and we immediately take that hope And we take that confidence and the thing we baptize is it. But we just drown it. We immediately immediately say, well, yeah, but not many of them are going to want to. Immediately. That's our first response. Our first response is not, oh my goodness, I've been sent to make disciples of the nations. Our first response is, but don't expect it to go very well. We immediately, I mean, when you're reading Matthew 28, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't say, make disciples and say, guys, that's going to be in Matthew, but I got something I got to tell you. You're going to try to make disciples of the nations and none of them are going to want to be disciples. That's not what he says. In fact, he ends, he ends Matthew's gospel with this grand, motivating word for his people to go and take the light of the gospel to the world. And, and we immediately go, yeah, but it's not going to be that effective. I mean, when you're, looking at Ma- when you're looking at the Great Commission, so we've got Jesus' message, we've got his powerful message, his prophecy-fulfilling, Daniel 7-fulfilling message... And we immediately make it less powerful than in Matthew 28 or in Daniel 7. That's the immediate thing we do. We've talked about this before. It's the same thing we do when the Bible says train up your children in the way they should go. And the first words out of our mouth are, yeah, but probably not all of them. That's the first thing we want to do is tone down those promises of God. Less powerful. Less powerful is not an image portrayed by the gospel of Matthew. 
There is not a hint of less powerful in the Gospel of Matthew from when he begins calling him the son of David, the son of Abraham, to when he ends saying he is the king of everyone. Now go and make disciples of all those Gentiles. And that's, it's, what's funny is not only does he not say that, but the things he tells them to do are what you do with a willing listener, right? Because what does he tell them to do? You baptize them and then you teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. There's confidence in that mission. So after telling them to do this, Jesus doesn't prepare them for being let down. In fact, he gives them instructions on what to do when those nations say yes. Make disciples of the nations. And those who say yes, what do you do? You baptize them. He's not saying you go to the nations and they're like, no. And you're like, yes. And you're just baptizing them. And they're trying to flee. And you're like, more water. You know, I mean, that's not what he, there's an expectation there of the nation saying yes. And this is what you do when they say yes. What, what to do with those nations who want to be disciples of Jesus? What do we do when we go to them and they want to be disciples? Do we circumcise them? And what do we do, Jesus? He says, you baptize them. You baptize them. You teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. I mean, this is, this is no forced baptism or forced indoctrination. There is an expectation in these words that the nations that, that here will come, that they will want to be baptized, that they'll want to learn and obey the words of Christ. Jesus doesn't say, I've got all authority so go and try to make disciples. Try, but it's not going to work. He says, go and make disciples. And since they'll want to be disciples, you baptize them, you teach them what they're supposed to know. I mean, so that, that's part of, of Jesus' Easter message to his people, a confident kingdom with a confident mission. So we must preach and proclaim with the same, uh, the same expectation of Christ, with the same confidence in Christ's message that he had to his disciples. Preach with the expectation, at least with the hope, that Christ's kingdom will be a light to those nations and therefore bring glory to his people Israel. Now, as you heard those words, you probably recognize that I didn't just come up with those words. If you did, you think, that's very elegant that he would be a light to the nations and glory to his people, Israel. Remember, that's what they said about Jesus when he was born. What did Simeon say when he first lifted up the child, only about a week old? What did he proclaim in Luke chapter 2, verse 29 through 32? Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. This is no small, I mean, Gentiles had been part of God's kingdom all the way back in the Old Testament. There had been Gentiles who had followed the Christ before the Christ ever came. And there were rules about how to handle the stranger among you. And you do, what did you tell them to do? You tell them to obey all of the law. You treat, you don't treat that. They don't get to be some special segment. So, so it's not like this is the first time Gentiles are coming. And so maybe it's not going to be very many. There were already not very many Gentiles coming in the Old Testament. It wouldn't be surprising if Jesus came and said, I've got good news. Take the gospel to the Gentiles. It's still not going to be very many. He says, look, you go and you take this to all nations. Now what happens though, instead of the nations coming to Israel, it's the Christ and his people that go to them. That go to them. 
and they go, what? Christ has come and the nations are going, Simeon says, they're going to start seeing the light. He's going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This is, this is the first book of Revelation for the Gentiles right here. And this is the one they're going to love. This revealing, it's going to be, this is going to be an apocalypse to the Gentiles. So go out with a confident mission. And Jesus, who began this message with a confident kingdom, then proclaimed a confident mission. You're going to go and you're make disciples of the nations. You baptize them. You teach them. This is what you do with those nations. What do we do with the nations? I don't know how to handle the nations. This is what you do with all those nations. He ends it with a confident promise. Verse 20. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus doesn't send us out on a, on a mission while he sort of reigns from afar. Jesus is a king who goes with his people. And this is going to be, he is, I mean, let's not get it, let's not, let's not get it sideways here. These disciples are going to be killed by the nations. The nations will kill them, but what the nations don't know is that in killing them, that is going to be, that is going to be the seed of the gospel that is going to win. I mean, there's a reason that the gospel goes out to Rome. Rome hates the church, tries to kill it, persecute it, try to destroy it. And what happens within 200 years? It's Rome bowing the knee to Christ, not the other way around. And so Jesus, who knows he's sending his disciples out and are they going to be successful? Yes. Is the gospel going to explode from Jerusalem and spread throughout what looked like the great kingdom on earth? Yes. Is that tree going to swallow up that kingdom? Yes. But are his disciples going to die in the process? Yes but they're not going to die alone. It says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba? Or, or how about the story of David and, and when, he, when, he, when he numbered the Israelites? I mean, you, you, could call those, you could say those are the two biggest sins of David's reign. And do you know what the Bible says before each one of those sins? You know what it describes about David's life? In both of those stories, look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. He's right before he does both of those events. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Israel. First Chronicles 20, verse 1. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army, ravaged the country of the Ammonites, and came and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Spring. Time for the kings to go out to war. But David stays behind. He leaves his people to go into battle. He didn't go with his army. He gave them the mission. He gave them the mission of what to do, but then he stayed behind. Our king doesn't send us out alone. He goes with us. And think about that. Your king that is seated at the right hand of power, it can be easy for us as Christians to think that we're just sort of trying to keep that lifeline with our king who is seated at the right hand of power. We keep having to look up there and say, you know, you're with me now. 
Jesus promises he is with us always. You can, ha- you can have confidence that Christ reigns. You can have confidence in the mission that he has given you to go and make disciples of the nation. Easter gives you great confidence in those things. But he doesn't just reign in the sky. He doesn't reign in some far off kingdom. He, the king of all, is with you, is is with us. So how do we respond to Easter? Look at the, the confident action that we begin. We are confident in the kingdom. We are confident in the message or in the mission. And we're confident in the promise. And all of that comes from a very confident Christ. In Matthew 28, Jesus has arisen. The first Easter morning. And we see all of these responses. We see fear. We see joy. We see humble worship. We see rejection. But ultimately, faith and evangelism. But from Jesus, we get a call. A confident call from our Christ, from the one who stepped out of the tomb. There is confidence oozing out of every word that he gives to his people. A confident kingdom. He is reigning. A confident mission that because he is reigning, take this gospel to the nations and watch the kingdom of the Son of Man grow like it was promised in Daniel chapter 7. And a confident promise. And the whole time you're doing that, that even when they take your life, do not be afraid because your king will be with you the whole time. So let me ask you, is your life filled with that confidence? If if the resurrected Christ gives that confidence to his people, what makes us water down our confidence? Why are we, why do we have to say things like how to share Jesus without fear? How can fear even be an option for people whose king reigns on high who has sent them a message and told them what to do when that message is successful and has told them, while you're doing it, know that I'm with you the whole time. If anything, it should be how to share, how to share without being absolute prideful jerks, right? Without being so confident in your king that you're not humbly serving him. For us, Easter is supposed to be a day of confidence. So how do you show your confidence in Easter? The same way those disciples were going to tell the disciples that they made by obeying Christ and believing Christ. But really, by obeying Christ on your mission because you believe Christ who gave you that mission. Because when he says all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, you believe him. Because when he says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, you believe him. 
And because when he tells you what to do with the nations who believe, and he tells you about baptizing them, and he tells them about teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, you don't go, there's no way. We have somehow, as the church, lost the confidence of Easter morning. We've lost the confidence in our king's kingdom. We've lost confidence in our mission. We have lost confidence in his promise to us. Your job is to make disciples of the Gentile. Of those without Christ. Of the nations. Of all of them. Whether your neighbor or, 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 a, or a nation of people living in rebellion. If you have a Gentile near you, he falls under the category of all nations. If there is a country afar, it falls under the category of all nations. Your job is to take the gospel to them. That's your job. Make disciples. The church needs to get busy. The church needs to believe this. Instead, the church is far better at being busy bodies than being busy workers. You are far more likely to get a phone call from each other complaining about Christ's kingdom than you are to pick up your phone and call your neighbor and proclaim to them the kingdom of Christ. That's been the history of Christ's church for far too long. You've got a mission. If you were confident, you'd be out there proclaiming it to everyone you saw instead of looking around you and seeing the neighbors that you've never even talked to about Jesus. That you have right off the bat, what did you assume when you saw them? You looked across the street and you said, no way. No way. Mm-mm. Not gonna, not, not no way am I going over there. That's part of it. But also you said, no way they'll believe. What arrogance. Church, what arrogance do we have? Because they're just as much the nations as we were. There's nothing about you that made your belief more believable than theirs. And yet we, the great kingdom keepers, right? Christ says, go and make disciples of all nations. We don't have to worry about the gates of hell holding back the kingdom of Christ because we're doing a fine job of it ourselves. Because we don't share the gospel. Because we don't believe in the king. We're not confident in the mission. He tells us to be confident in. Because we forgot he's with us the whole time. What is Easter supposed to do with us? Easter is supposed to light us on fire to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptize them. Don't baptize your enthusiasm. Don't wash it out before it has a chance to get started. Go and go confidently and watch Christ work. Watch Christ work. Be confident that you may, you may plant and you may water, but what does Jesus say? He'll, or, or Paul say, God will give the growth. God will give the growth. We are so sure that God won't give growth that many of us don't even plant and water. We don't do Paul's job. We don't do Apollos' job. We haven't done anything. And we can probably look outside our windows every day 
in our kingdoms of Christ that God has graciously given us in our homes. And we can see people that we have said, I don't have enough confidence that you'll ever believe to truly proclaim to you, be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We're busy about so many other things. You know what you need to be busy about with Easter? Confidently proclaiming. Your king reigns. And he's not calling on the world to serve him. He's calling on the world to follow him. And he's with you the whole time you do that. That's what Easter is supposed to do in us. Not just that day, but every day for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we come to you humbly, Father. Humbly, God, because we have so much to repent of in our lives. So much to say, God, I have not been about your mission. I look at all the things I've been busy about, and it's not what I see in Matthew 28. I've been busy about so many other things that I can't even figure out how those connect to the great mission that you've given me. And I've allowed myself to be distracted by so many other things. What we do here is making disciples of the nations, but it doesn't stop here. And forgive us, Father, when we are the ones who close the gates of the kingdom, where we are the ones, we are the ones who don't have the confidence to throw the doors open and don't just tell the Gentiles to come in, but where we pour out and it is hell that tries to shut their gates, but they will not prevail against us. Give us that confidence that you gave to your disciples. May we believe that our Christ is genuinely reigning at your right hand right now. The one who came out of the tomb is sitting there. All authority in heaven and on earth given to him. He's sitting by the ancient of days. And he gave us a mission and told us he'd be with us the whole time we did it. Give us back that confidence. If we were there at the tomb, Father, I believe we would have that confidence. May we believe your word enough to have that confidence today as well. May we be a people who don't just need to see in order to believe but who believe just as much, who trust your word that tells us that these things happened, who gives us this mission. And if your word is true, then Easter is real. The words of our Christ are real. And so is our mission. So Father, let us be about that mission. And let us do it with confidence, not in ourselves, but in you and in you in us. We're thankful, Father, for these words. We're thankful for how they humble us. We're thankful for our Christ. May he reign in us just as he reigns over all things on heaven and on earth. It is in his name that we pray and pray in confidence and proclaim like the little children do. Jesus is Lord.
Amen.